Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, March the 26th, 2023, the last Sunday in March. Uh, March has been a month in which we on Keenon have been, in part at least, celebrating Women's History Month. We've been celebrating it in all sorts of interesting, provocative, and sometimes even bloody ways. Uh, we began the month with a conversation with the novelist Andrea Dunlop on why today is such a rage-inducing moment to be a woman. She has a new feminist novel out. Um, not just rage-making, but perhaps murder-making. We did a show with the historian Patty McCracken, um, uh, who has a new book out, The Angel Makers. It's a history, a real history, of uh, a group of women in Hungary who murdered 160 or maybe even more of their husbands and sons and fathers for their cruelty and alcoholism uh, just after the First World War. We've done some fictional stuff on murder, too, with the uh, novelist Ren De Stefano on female serial killers. Fortunately, not all our shows have been about women murderers. We did one with the novelist Kristen Loesch on feminism and women in 20th century Russia. A very interesting story. Another show with the historian Elizabeth Armstrong on uh, what she called the most consequential anti-colonial feminist conference you've never heard of. It was in Beijing, and her book was called Bury the Corpse of Colonialism. We've done some shows also with artists, with creatives on the uh, feminist front celebrating Women's History Month. My old friend Tiffany Schlein who lives just over in Marin County, has a new show up in San Francisco in which uh, she, uh, on a, a carved out uh, uh, tree, uh, imagines the whole history of women. It's interesting, in the period between the 1600s and the 1800s, she talks about uh, the discovery of America, the first feminist in America, the history of abortion, and in the 1880s, a history of indigenous and abolitionist leaders and British suffragettes. She doesn't focus, though, specifically on any of those suffragettes or women's rights activists. So today, perhaps our last show for Women's History Month, at least for March 2023, we're going to talk more specifically about the history of feminism and the history of a couple of the most remarkable 19th century women. Um, in a new book called Her Lost Words. It's a novel of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley, uh, mother and daughter. Actually, uh, I guess Mary Wollstonecraft was a late 18th century uh, figure. And the author is Stephanie Marie Thornton, who is joining us from Alaska. Uh, Stephanie, uh, you've made your own history, shall we say, of, of writing fiction about unusual female characters why do you do that how did you how did you discover that literary vocation it's a very interesting niche that you're developing uh well that's a great question i'm also um, a high school history teacher and librarian and as i have been teaching for almost two decades now um i would come across 
names of women in textbooks. Um, and it was usually just their name and a sentence. Um, the first one that really stuck out to me was um, Hatshepsut, who is a, um, a female pharaoh from ancient Egypt. She was actually the first successful female pharaoh. Um, Cleopatra gets all of the glitz and glamour and name recognition. And I thought, who is this person? Um, Theodora of the Byzantine Empire, there was a sentence in a textbook about how she had saved her husband's throne and ushered in the golden age, which I guess then ushered in the golden age. Of yeah, the and you call that book uh, The Secret History, uh, the one about um, Constantinople in, in the seventh, uh, sixth century Constantinople. Yes. So that was the first book I ended up publishing because I thought there has to be more to this story than just a sentence. And then I found out, oh my gosh, this woman led an amazing life. Hatshepsut made Egypt into a powerhouse um, and did it peacefully, generally speaking. Um, so there's just... Over the course of the years, um, I've discovered a lot of women um, whose stories have been ignored, changed, um, swept under the rug. Uh, and I wanted to shine a spotlight on these women's lives because um, history can be really dry and dusty in and of itself if it's just textbooks and dates and things. But man, when you get the stories and really get into the motivations of these women and what they accomplished, it makes for some really great reading. And learning yeah you um some of your other books you did a novel about alice roosevelt another one um and they called it camelot about you know who jackie onassis or jackie kennedy and then one called uh, a most clever girl uh, a novel about uh, elizabeth bentley a cold war double agent in a way this new book um stephanie her lost words is about more conventional feminist figures, Mary Wollstonecraft and, and Mary Shelley. So I had a couple of questions. Firstly, of course, why did you choose them? But um, secondly, why did you choose to do a novel about them? And what's the difference between a novel and a non-fictional work about this, this, this remarkable team of mother and daughter? Not that they're formally a team, of course. Right. Uh, so you mentioned earlier on in the show the... Um, feminists uh, who were also suffragettes, and I am really passionate about those women uh, at the turn of the century. Uh, but I also started reading about them, and the name Mary Wollstonecraft kept coming up. And I knew Mary uh, from teaching. Um, I've got this whole enlightenment um, project that I have my students do. And Mary is, of course, uh, one of the, the figures of the enlightenment towards the end, um, because Enlightenment, of course, is when all of these great ideas about education and learning and freedom and so on are all burbling to the surface. And Mary was there to say, yes, yes, all of these things, people do have rights and we should be free. And when I say people, I also mean women, which had not been articulated yet. <clears throat> Um, yeah, so and, uh, sorry to interrupt. I've got to be really careful on these sorts of shows about interrupting. You know what men are like. But um, I did say at the beginning she was a 19th century figure which was entirely wrong she actually died in 1797 so she was the classic 18th century figure at the very tail end yes um but mary shelley is definitely 19th um so mary wollstonecraft's name kept coming up and i started reading about her actual life um and thought oh my gosh this woman did so many things and she was such a front runner um really a woman ahead of her time so her story needs to be told but of course i, I already knew mary wollstonecraft is also the mother of mary shelley uh, and when you start reading about mary shelley because you know authors go up down rabbit holes um then i realized oh my gosh these two have 
both amazing life stories to be told. And even though they were only alive together, this is not a spoiler, it's on the back cover and I think most people know, um, Mary Wollstonecraft dies of childbed fever. So she is not around for Mary Shelley's lifetime. Um, and Mary Shelley, so much of her life and also her literary works um, were infused with this need to travel in her mother's footsteps um, and to work through some of the issues that she had because she, she never had a, a mother. Uh, she ends up with a stepmother, but that's a whole different story. So uh, because I love telling stories about these forgotten women in history, I mean, Mary Shelley's a household name, I think, because of Frankenstein, but Mary Wollstonecraft, definitely not so much. Uh, well, it's interesting with Mary um, Wollstonecraft, uh, David Runciman, one of the world's leading historians of political thoughts been on the show a couple of times he, he wrote a book about the history of political thought in which i think he focuses we had a podcast which he focuses on 12 or 10 of the most influential contemporary or the uh, political philosophers since the enlightenment it's interesting that um that one of the shows he did was about mary wollstonecraft and in particular her vindication of the rights of of woman. How important a book do you think this is? Um, it's critically important. Uh, it's, I would say, a cornerstone of modern feminist thought. Um, it has always been present um, since Mary Wollstonecraft wrote it, of course, um, but she was reviled after her death. Um, so it, it, I don't want to say it was put on the back burner because anyone who was interested in feminism and women's rights knew of that book. Um, but Virginia Woolf and some other uh, female writers and thinkers and uh, so on worked to rehabilitate, rehabilitate her image um, about 100 years ago. And since then, I would say it has just been becoming more and more um, cited, more um, prevalent. Uh, but as far as feminist thought goes, it's definitely front and center. What does she say in this book? Is it a, a classic liberation book about simply recognizing that women are equal to men and should have identical political, cultural, social, sexual rights? Um, in a nutshell, yes. And you mentioned the word classic. Um, this was really the first book to do so um, in a really comprehensive, holistic manner. Um, Vindication of the Rights of Woman came out actually after a, a different book uh, that she wrote, uh, which was A Vindication of the Rights of Man. And that was in response to Edmund Burke. He was a, a member of parliament. Uh, who had written um, this doctrine um, stating that basically the lower classes should be glad for whatever crumbs were given to them. Uh, and she was irate. She had already written another book called... Uh, that Actually, I'm not sure on. whether that's entirely fair about Edmund Burke, is it? Well, the snippets that she responded to, uh, yes. Anyway, that's maybe another book or another story, but I'm not sure Edmund Burke was quite as mean as you suggest, but anyway, go on. Well, in, in the, the snippets uh, that I cite in the book uh, he that Mary Wollstonecraft responded to, he was definitely not on the, the bandwagon for everyone has equal rights, uh, which Mary Wollstonecraft was very passionate that all men and women are born with equal rights uh, and that the political systems needed to recognize that. Um, so, she had uh, also written a book called On the Education of Daughters, which was her first book. Um, and then she also wrote some novels um, that were kind of peppered throughout. But 
you can trace, she starts with education and stating that women should also be educated because they definitely were not at the time. Um, they were meant to be very gently educated um, and just to the extent that they could then be mothers. And she said, that's, that's not enough. If you want good mothers raising good sons, like just to get to the very base argument, then you need to educate women properly. Um, and she goes through uh, and gives many examples of how that's not happening. Um, so then broadening it to vindication of the rights of man with everyone has equal rights. Everyone should be educated. It doesn't matter your social class. And then she specifically writes a vindication of the rights of woman um, to say, look, here's all the ways that 50% of the population is being ignored. And this is unacceptable. England and beyond uh, need to change this. It's I interesting that, that uh, her vindication uh, of the rights of, of man uh, coming back to Burke, was a response to Burke's own reflections on the revolution in France, which now in retrospect seems quite a fair and compelling critique of the bloodiness of the French Revolution. What was Wollstonecraft's take on the French Revolution? Was she a supporter of the destruction of the French aristocracy and the upheaval of the French Revolution? Uh, so Mary Wollstonecraft actually travels to France um, in the midst of the revolution, I would say, um, as the terror is really gaining steam. Um, she was able to convince her publisher that it was a good idea for her, a single young woman, to go over um, and report on the uh, revolution and send back information uh, that would then be published in England so that the British would know exactly what was happening at the time. Uh, so... When she first goes over, um, she was very much in favor of the revolution because she wanted to see rights given to you know, the third estate and to everyone. And once she's there, she's present when King Louis is guillotined. Um, she actually walks through the halls of Versailles, which uh, after the king and queen, of course, had been taken back to the Tuileries Palace. Uh, and she's walking through this deserted, the Hall of Mirrors, uh, and just sort of reflecting. She sees the guillotines, she sees the bloodshed, um, and her mindset definitely shifts. She does end up staying through uh, most of the revolution uh, and does compile all of her writings into a history, um, but she is not in favor of all of the, the bloodshed that she sees once she's there. I think that um, Reading about revolution is one thing, but seeing it in action, especially the French Revolution, uh, with all of the, the guillotines flying was a very different matter. So still in favor of rights for all, but you don't have to kill thousands of people in order to get there. We know about her from uh, the memoirs of the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women, but that memoir, ironically or otherwise, was written by a man, her husband, William Godwin. Tell me a little bit about Godwin, how he fits in. Uh, another very distinguished thinker, the, one of the fathers of utilitarianism. Um, was, is Godwin, how does he come out of the book and in your interpretation of, of Wollstonecraft's life? Um, Godwin, William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft were definitely uh, a love match, which was not something that Mary Wollstonecraft was looking for or intending on uh, when she was rubbing elbows with all of these revolutionaries, including William Godwin. Uh, they, uh, he, of course, is Mary Shelley's father. And they, it was just this wonderful meeting of minds. So they had uh, a passionate intellectual um, connection um, and everything was 
great <laughs> until, of course, Mary Wollstonecraft passes away. Um, and he is so grief stricken. Um, he doesn't attend the funeral. Uh, he ends up pouring himself into this project of writing down his wife's life history, um, which he wasn't actually present for a lot of the events of her life um, since they met later on in her life uh, and were together a fairly short time. Uh, so he ends up writing this memoir in an attempt to vindicate her because she did lead a very unconventional life for a woman at the time, um, having um, a child out of wedlock um, and not getting married until later on, which um, neither she nor William had been really uh, passionate about the institution of marriage. Mary Wollstonecraft actually had equated it to slavery for women um, because they lose all of their political rights to their husband upon the moment that they marry. Uh, but this book that he wrote ends up being received in exactly the opposite manner uh, that he had intended. So in exposing so many of Mary Wollstonecraft's more private uh, moments and some of the more unconventional things uh, that she had done, um, from her relationships to even attempting suicide. Uh, he ends up just exposing for the world to see uh, just how unconventional she was uh, to the point that she becomes a reviled figure in history uh, for many, many decades actually. So that um, definitely was not his intent, but that was what happened, unfortunately. I'm not sure whether that's not such a bad thing to be reviled. I mean, who wants to be loved? Uh, that's another question. Um, it's interesting, these 18th, late 18th, 19th century men and feminism. Other, another utilitarian, John Stuart Mill, wrote a book, The Subjection of Women, which was very influential later in the 19th century. And it was essentially written by uh, his wife, Harriet Taylor Mill, and uh, it was written almost uh, as a as a eulogy for her. I mean, he seems obsessed with this woman. What is it about these 18th and 19th century, quote unquote, liberal utilitarian British men and the women they idolized? Uh, well, I think in both William Godwin and John Stuart Mill's cases, they were also uh, proponents of equal rights for women. And they were married to women who they saw as very strong women um, who were examples of just what womanhood could look like if you educated women and gave them equal rights. Um, so in these women's deaths, uh, I, I like to think that both Godwin and John Stuart Mill were sort of taking up the torch and feeling like they were doing what they could um, in order to advance the cause of women's rights. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I know that uh, some feminists are, to put it mildly, rather ambivalent about, certainly male, I'm not sure about Godwin, some feminists might see these men as inappropriate uh, carriers of, of ideas of feminism, but that's another question too. Let's, let's move on to the daughter. We've talked a little bit about the mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. Then she had this, this daughter, Mary Shelley, uh, Wollstonecraft. Oh, what Wikipedia calls Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, although most people remember her just as Mary Shelley. Of course, the mother and daughter never knew one another. That's the tragedy at the heart of your novel. Is that fair? Yes. Um, Mary Shelley grows up, uh, you know, she's got her father, who is, of course, uh, an intellectual uh, and has her educated just as Mary Wollstonecraft would have wanted uh, and arranged herself. And Mary Shelley is surrounded 
throughout her young life by these ideas um, of equality and revolution. And um, she's immersed in books and words. Uh, and then she ends up meeting Percy Shelley uh, and falls in with an entirely different literary crowd, although Percy Shelley fancied himself a revolutionary as well for a while. That's um, how he meets and almost idolizes William Godwin. But he's um, not. Uh, but he's not a. I mean, Shelley was never a utilitarian, was he? No, no. But a romantic, uh, also, if anything, probably a critic of utilitarianism. But uh, he, <laughs> for a, a brief moment, goes to Ireland uh, and is helping to um, agitate uh, for revolution there. Uh, he actually takes some of William Godwin's passages from his different books uh, and puts them into bottles uh, and then sends them into the sea for the revolutionaries to find. Um, it, it's very that's a very Percy Shelley thing to do. <laughs> um, but he was also an ardent admirer of Mary Wollstonecraft, which uh, also helps foster a connection with her daughter, Mary Shelley, upon meeting her. So, and I think Mary Shelley uh, was primed uh, because she, she hadn't been able to talk much about her mother. Um, her father was pretty closed off to her. Um, and although he had remarried, one can tell that he was still very much in love with Mary Wollstonecraft. He kept her um, painted portrait in his study. He kept a lock of her hair, uh, but wouldn't talk to Mary Shelley about her mother. Uh, and so when Percy Shelley, who's this young, handsome, romantic poet comes uh, to dinner and is just full of flattery for Mary Wollstonecraft's works. Um, I think that was definitely a, an instant connection with Mary Shelley. So there was finally someone who she could talk to. Stephanie, uh, the book is called Her Lost Words. Are these the lost words as a novelist, of course, you, you can choose whatever words you want. Are these Wollstonecraft's words or Shelley's words or both of their words? I think the title can apply to both of them. Um, Mary Shelley is famously known for writing Frankenstein, but she also writes um, travel logs, many other novels, poetry. Um, she helps, um, well, I shouldn't say helps, she compiles Percy Shelley's poetry uh, into a definitive volume after he dies um, and edits it. She has a lot of words that are also lost. Uh, and then same with Mary Wollstonecraft. She writes A Vindication of Rights of Woman, uh, but also so many other words. Um, and then within the novel itself, uh, Mary Shelley trying to connect with her mother who, you know, has long since passed. It's her words uh, that she's able to use to connect with her mother, um, reading the things that her mother wrote, walking where her mother wrote about. Um, these are all powerful things because words, words do have power. Words, of course, do have power. And I don't want to give away all your power because we want people to, to, to buy the new book. It's out next week. But very briefly, what's the narrative? Um, so the book goes back and forth between Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, and the narrative is really these two women seeking to find themselves uh, and also find ground to stand upon. Um, because being a woman in whether it's the 1700s or the 1800s uh, was to be a second class citizen. Um, so refusing to do that. Um, finding their own words because Mary Wollstonecraft has to become this female writer, which was pretty much unheard of at the time. Uh, so that was very much uh, revolutionary for her time. And then Mary Shelley is standing in the shadow of both her mother 
and her father, and then eventually Percy Shelley, and we can add Lord Byron to that list. Um, but she also finds her own words. Uh, so coming into their own, but then also weaving the two stories together because there were a number of similarities. And Mary Shelley, as she seeks to find out who her mother was, uh, finds those things out and then um, also gains a lot of confidence in herself and her own words along the way. I mean, it goes without saying that uh, Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women is a feminist text. What about Frankenstein, which in some ways is a much more prescient book than, uh, the, than the rights of women? And today with AI and increasing ubiquity and menace of technology, do you see Frankenstein as um, a, a feminist novel? Um, I don't think that it would necessarily count as a feminist novel um, in her rewrites, even um, because Mary Shelley wrote the book and had it published. And then um, a, more than a decade later, she ends up editing it um, and then it's re-released. Uh, it's published anonymously initially, uh, and she makes a point to keep some of the women um, off the page. Um, and that even maybe more so in the, the second version. Um, however, I, no one can argue that Frankenstein is definitely a classic. And as you mentioned, um, it has continued to grow with society. Um, in, like, I don't think Mary Shelley would have anticipated AI being a connection to uh, Frankenstein, but it definitely is. So the questions that she poses about how much power man should have and how much we should create, um, these are all questions that we're still wrestling with. So um, also, the fact that she wrote it as a teenager um, just continues to blow my mind. That's astonishing. Yeah. Uh, how long did it take her to write? How old was she? Um, so it's about a two-year period between when she first starts writing it during um, the story. She went to Switzerland, didn't she? Or, or it was a consequence of a, a trip to Switzerland? Or am I wrong on that? No, uh, she was in Switzerland with uh, Percy and Lord Byron, and they were holed up. It was this horrific summer, um, weather-wise, because a volcano had erupted, and uh, they were basically trapped in this villa as it was storming outside, and Lord Byron had been reading some ghost stories uh, and said, hey, we should try to write our own stories. Of course, he's probably proposing this because Lord Byron thought very highly of himself and thought that he would win this competition. Uh, Mary Shelley was... Um, not really gung-ho about it, but then according to her recording of it, she had sort of a waking dream uh, with this imagery of this creature coming to life um, and then sets about writing. So it's uh, about a two-year period between when she first starts writing um, from this story competition to when it actually hits the shelves with that first anonymous publishing. Um, and it's still kicking around today, of course. It's all very eerie, uh, Stephanie, because... The the, the non-fictional element, uh, th there's an uncanniness to this whole history. You mentioned Lord Byron. Byron was the father of Ada Lovelace, the woman who invented software, the woman who is probably the founder of everything now that of, of our modern world, in many ways the most influential, not just woman, but figure of the, the 19th century. Um what is it about these 19th century Victorian women, whether it's Ada Lovelace? I mean, of course, uh, 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 Wollstonecraft wasn't Victorian, but what is it about these late 18th, 
and 19th century British women that make them so remarkable, whether it's Mary Shelley or Ada Lovelace or, 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 or Wollstonecraft? Is it a cultural thing? Is it a historical thing? Was there a particular moment in time where these women uh, not just shaped the history of modern feminism, but of the modern world? Um, well, I think you have a confluence of um, a few factors. These are women who are coming from, if not well off, um, William Godwin was famous for um, asking Percy Shelley for money, actually, um, but well enough to do uh, that they were also able to be educated. Uh, and as Mary Wollstonecraft had pointed out, if you educate women, <laughs> you're going to get a whole lot of new ideas. Uh, and why wouldn't you educate half of the populace? Um, the, the British, of course, at this time period are also at the, the pinnacle of empire. So there's a lot coming into Britain um, that is meant to, well, maybe not meant to, but that whets the appetite um, for learning and knowledge and um, exploring and discovering new things. And this is, you know, at the same time that the Industrial Revolution is happening. So people are open and willing to trying new things and experimenting and inventing. Um, and when you crack open the door for 50% of the population to also take part in that, um, then I think you get a lot more um, than what had happened in the past as far as women being able to contribute to the conversation. It's interesting that you brought up uh, Edmund Burke earlier. You said, I think correctly, that uh, Wollstonecraft wrote her vindication of the rights of men in response to Burke's critique of the French Revolution, which today seems reasonably prescient in the context of the Russian and the Chinese, the bloodiness of those revolutions. I'm not sure Burke would necessarily be against female rights. He was a conservative, but in an interesting way. If, you, if, if we brought uh, Wollstonecraft and Shelley back today in 2023, in March 23, to celebrate uh, Women's History Month with us, what kind of feminists do you think they would be, uh, given that there's a great uh, there's a rich tradition now of different feminism, some more radical, some more conservative, some focused on conventional classic liberalism, others going beyond that in cultural terms. What, 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 where would we find uh, Wollstonecraft and Shelley on the feminist spectrum in 2023? Um, I don't want to pinpoint exactly where they would be because 2023 is a very different looking world than um, either the, the 18th or the 19th centuries. But um, I can say that Mary Wollstonecraft was definitely more of a firebrand feminist. Um, she actually had her initial book on the education of daughters rejected by quite a few publishers because it was seen as too vitriolic um, and people weren't willing to publish it. Uh, I think that she... She would have cheered on, um, for example, the British feminists uh, at the turn of the 20th century who were out um, bombing postal boxes uh, and things like that because her bottom line was women deserve to be equal and whatever it takes to get there is what should happen. Um, that's why she was in favor of the French Revolution until she sees how it had gone off the rails. Um, Mary Shelley, on the other hand, um, I, I would hesitate to say that she would be a really firebrand feminist, um, because as I mentioned before, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call 
Frankenstein a, a feminist novel, um, but she was definitely in favor of education. Uh, she was a, a recipient of that herself. Uh, and we can see that that was definitely something that influenced her later on life. Finally, Stephanie, um, again, don't need me to tell you this, and our audience knows it better, certainly better than I do. We live in an age where gender has essentially been muddied by new technologies. And the, the trans movement is enormously powerful and controversial. Um, and we also live in an age where AI seems to be uh, automating or outsourcing words to machines from humans. I know this is dumb questions, really, because we can't say for sure. But you're a novelist, so you've got a great imagination. Where do you think that Wollstonecraft uh, would be on the trans issue, and what what would Shelley's position be on um, on AI and and the development of uh, gen uh, uh, generative AI, which uh, machines spew out words seemingly in competition with humans? Um, in regards to Wollstonecraft, she was in favor of equality for all. So all means all. So again, not wanting to try to put words in her mouth for a world that's very different than the one that she lived in, but all is all. Um, and for Mary Shelley, um, she was a romantic, right? She's, uh, <laughs> she's married to Percy Shelley. She hangs out with Lord Byron. Um, definitely two of the, the big names of the romantic poetry movement. Um, there's, there's things that machines can't do. Um, there's things that when machines take them over mm, might not go quite as well. Um, anyone who reads Frankenstein can see, oh, it's definitely a warning of humans creating and trying to play God. Uh, so I, I definitely think that Mary Shelley would say that there's something special in the human intelligence and the human consciousness, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's also applicable to the creations of humans, um, especially if those creations are meant to take the place of humans. How are we going to make more Stephanie Marie Thornton's, uh, Stephanie, without turning you into a bot? You're clearly someone of enormous enthusiasm. You've written all these books, and yet you're a real teacher. You bring your enthusiasm and knowledge and passion into the classroom. You teach uh, at a school outside Anchorage in Alaska. You seem to me to be the the model of what a good teacher should be with your enthusiasm and ability to write books. Um, any ideas on uh, bottling up Stephanie Marie Thornton and, and making sure that we have more people, not just women, men and women like yourself, able to write and teach? Because that seems to be the great challenge, particularly in our age of AI, making sure that we humans can compete with machines. Um, so that's a really loaded question, and I could spend a really long time uh, answering that because I feel pretty passionate um, about there being more opportunities, especially in our schools, for creativity uh, and for teachers to also be creative. Humans are capable of such amazing feats. I mean, everything from we've landed on the moon to walk through an art museum and look at Van Gogh and Starry Night. Oh, my goodness. Um, but in this day and age, um, a lot of that creativity is being throttled uh, in our school systems. Uh, and if teachers were allowed to teach and students were allowed to be creative and pursue their passions in school, 
I just like my mind just explodes with the, the ideas of what we could potentially see and experience uh, that instead is being scripted uh, and constrained. And that, that breaks my heart. 